you are not alone. I think it is a very isolating condition. I think it's important to realise that you aren't alone. It isn't necessary that you have to be isolated with this condition. There's help out there. Welcome to the Silent Elephant Project podcast, where we have conversations with everyday people living with life-limiting health conditions. We're not claiming to be specialists, but we are offering a therapeutic space to build dialogue around marginalised health themes, giving you the opportunity to listen in. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello once again, welcome to this podcast. I'm Kondwani and I'll be your host. Today I talk to Russell Fleming, Communications Manager for the Charity Emmy Association. Russell shares with us the great work of the Emmy Association in providing support and help for those living with ME-CFS. ME is short for myalgic encephalomyelitis and CFS is short for chronic fatigue syndrome. The illness, in a sense, is interchangeably used. Russell starts off by introducing us to the ways in which the ME Association support people with ME-CFS, the campaigns they are working on, how they want to build awareness of their charity to help people out there living with and recognizing when they have ME-CFS. He also touches on the medical education and biomedical research they are currently supporting and carrying out and hoping to work on in the future. He shares an insight into the more recent link between long COVID and ME and what he thinks the future will hold for the ME Association. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's get into this episode. What work do you do specifically with ME Association and how do you see the impact that ME Association has got in, within the community? Well, I'm Russell Fleming and I'm the Head of Communications at the ME Association. For me, I think just be in there. So we're here for people. They can get in touch with us, ask us any questions. To be able to validate, to empathise, to just listen at times, you know, to be a voice on the other end of the telephone or at the other end of an email or social media message, that can often just, just be enough. There are so many people out there who don't have a GP who's interested, for example, or who don't yet have a diagnosis, who are really suffering because they can't continue working, or they're worried about work, or they're worried about a relationship. There's just generally a great deal of worry, and I think the ME Association has brought a lot of people together. If we look, for example, in recent years at the growth of our social media platforms, just having a place where people can come to discuss topics of interest, having ME Connect Telephone Helpline, as I mentioned, has really helped. I mean, those are things where you can, on a daily basis, see the impact you're having just for being here. So traditionally, charities would have members, then you pay a subscription and you would get a, a magazine. So we have that. Um, you can become a member of the charity. I received that, yeah. <laughs> So again, you know, we do get testimonials, obviously from members, we get testimonials from non-members. I go through them all and largely people are just thankful that we're here. 
and doing what we do, providing you know up-to-date and reliable information, medical information in particular, investing in research to the best of our ability, driving campaigns forward. So for example, before the new NICE guideline, there was an older NICE guideline which was published in 2007, and that wasn't very good at all really. It was good in parts, but in other parts it wasn't. It recommended something called graded exercise therapy. As a charity, we were getting a lot of feedback from patients saying that you know they were trying this graded exercise therapy and it, it wasn't helping them. In fact, it was causing harm. So we started campaigning to try and get the guideline reviewed. Now that took us essentially from 2007 until 2017. Ten years. Wow, that's... That's a long time. Yeah. Anyway, it culminated in a petition that I ran. We got about 17,000 signatures asking NICE to review. It just tipped the argument over the, over the edge and NICE finally agreed to review it. That led to four years of hard work, as I said, involving Dr. Charles Shepherd, who was on the guideline committee, other patient representatives as well, clinical experts, etc. They went through all the research evidence and things came up with a set of recommendations that I think everybody uh, gets behind now. So that's an example of long-term campaigning. Again, this was quite unusual for a charity, so we decided this Christmas that instead of asking people for money, we'd give something back. We wanted to, to give the people that support people with ME some recognition. So we asked our members to nominate people that had cared for them or looked after them or were highly valued by them. We then randomly sent seasonal hampers to a selection of the nominations and I was behind that. I think it was right for us as a charity to recognise the contributions of people who are quite often the unsung heroes, aren't they? The people that looked after you, looked after me. You don't hear about charities doing that. I thought it was a, it was a good idea and I'm very pleased we did it. We've got um, campaigns coming up. We're putting the final touches to a 12-month campaign, which will launch in, I think, May, hopefully, where we're going to try and reach a lot more people than we currently do. We're aware that there's perhaps 260,000 people in the UK with ME or with symptoms but without a diagnosis. We're also aware, as I said before, of 1.8 million people with long COVID who might meet the criteria for ME and what we want to do is try and reach these people and we're not doing it at the moment we're only reaching a fraction I think our following on Facebook is about 30,000 we're going to design a campaign we're working with an advertising agency we've got a purpose for the campaign we want to try and get more people engaging with us benefiting from the information benefiting from the recommendations benefiting from sharing their experiences with other people like you talked about very much looking forward to that the other thing i would just mention we also fund the mecfs biobank which is at the london school of hygiene and tropical medicine and we've been the only charity to fund it since it started in 2011 what they do is they go out and visit people with ME at home. So these are people who are severely affected or even very severely affected. They take blood samples, they take clinical data, and then the samples are stored or frozen in a biobank at the Royal Free Hospital. And then the biobank team make the samples and data available to researchers all around the world. 
as well as doing their own research. You know, it's a vital resource because we're trying to, you know, promote ME research as being vital, as being something that's interesting, exciting to get involved with. The campaign will start next month. We're going to have 12 months promoting that biobank. And then the third thing I've mentioned, which has come up recently, we're looking at a post-mortem tissue bank. That's going to require a lot of money, millions probably, because ME is believed to be at least in part neurological, it's not easy to gain access to the kind of tissue samples that you might need to conduct effective research. So these would be tissue samples from the brain and from the spinal cord in particular, which means we can only do it after a person's died. So if we can establish a post-mortem tissue bank and extract donor tissue, store it, analyze it, research it, it might finally unlock some of the secrets behind why certain people get ME, what ME is all about, why it causes some of the symptoms. Wow, that, that's amazing. That's impressive. For a charity, I would like to say, so small, but yet such a huge impact. It's amazing, you know, the, the impact and the output you guys are having to, to manage. Do you all have ME working together as a team? What's the working conditions like? Are they more adaptable to ME understanding? Like, this is just impressive. I mean, we've been cautiously expanding over the years since I've been involved, certainly. In fact, my appointment was part of, part of the expansion. But you're right, we are a relatively small medical charity. We have about 50 people working for us, and 25 of those are volunteers who look after the telephone helpline, who do a brilliant, brilliant job. And then you've got six trustees, two associate trustees, so you're not talking about many actual staff involved with the charity. Um, so we are a relatively small medical charity. People who donate to a charity want to see that their, their donations are being well used. We're not a charity that builds anything, so you can't sort of say, you know, you're donating money and this is the end result. Although some of our research projects, you can see the end result there. Predominantly, we provide support to people who are affected. We've been very fortunate in the last two years to have some credible legacies left to us. So, you know, we're in a good financial position, which during an energy crisis and recession, you know, other charities are faring a lot worse than us. So the future's looking good and I think we will continue to grow and I think we will continue to invest in some really good research studies. Fantastic. And in terms of the research that is being done, because of long COVID, I feel like people are beginning to know a bit more about ME. Because I remember when um, the long COVID, for example, research funding was announced and people in the community, you know, from the forums I dive in now and then, there was a sense of relief, i.e. excitement that the research they would do with long COVID will hopefully kind of discover something and help ME research because the research funding towards ME has been very poor in a sense, has been less than compared to other, in a sense, given the impact that it's got. Because even on the economy as well, if you think about the ripple effect, that was the argument for the long COVID funding. So it got me thinking, and I'm curious to find out um, your, your take. The economic impact is a good thing to start with. So a study, although it was done number of years ago now, I think 2015, so that might be 2017. So that determined that 
ME was costing the UK economy about £3.3 billion a year in terms of people not being able to work and relying on benefits, etc, etc. Like you say, they used a similar argument with long COVID. Obviously, the numbers are much bigger, so 1.8 million people compared to potentially 260,000 people with ME. But what hasn't happened, as you rightly say, is for ME CFS, we just haven't had the central funding to support significant research investment. Other medical charities like the Multiple Sclerosis uh, Society or Cancer Research UK, they do actually put in a huge amount of money into research compared to the government. While there is an argument to say that government hasn't funded any research to the same extent, certainly to the same extent as it's currently funding long COVID. There's also an argument that says ME charities have also not funded to a reasonable level ME research. Now, as a charity, we can only put money into research if we got money to start with. So, you know, the counter argument then would run. We just haven't had sufficient donations. Anyway, all that being said, long COVID research is interesting. Unfortunately, we'd like to have seen the scientists looking at long COVID, we'd like to have seen them including people with ME because we think, you know, it's quite important to contrast and compare long COVID with ME. Let's see if the cellular level, whether the similar things are happening to both illness groups. Maybe it'll answer the question once and for all, is long COVID another form of ME? Is it effectively the same as ME? Is it another post-viral fatigue? syndrome or a post-infectious fatigue syndrome. So yeah, long COVID research, good. Results coming out interesting, but it would be nice if they included people with ME. There's a big research study going on at the moment. Uh, they're recruiting now called Decode ME. You know, it's turned out to be the biggest study of its kind ever in the world. Now funding for that which totaled 3.3 million pounds, came half from the Medical Research Council and half from the National Institute of Health Research, which are the two funding bodies from the government. But it took so long to get the application right for the funders to give us the money. So it was a great relief when it finally all kicked off. Been an awful lot of work from patients involved getting the research application together and they continue to be involved so it's, it's very patient-led very patient orientated which is very very good professor chris ponting who's based up in edinburgh he's the genetics expert who's leading the study so twenty thousand people with me are providing spit samples as you say so that dna can be analyzed they're also including a cohort of people with long covid again so that you can contrast compare and then they'll be able to contrast compare, as in most good research studies, with a cohort of healthy people. The idea being that you want to see if there's any differences in the DNA of people with ME, people with long COVID, against people who are healthy. You always need something to compare to, don't you? We're hopeful because genetics is probably the most likely place to find the answer to the question, why do only certain people fail to recover from certain infections because we find that ME can occur more than once in family groups so a mother might get it daughter or son might get it within the same family group why if a hundred thousand people get glandular fever why is it five percent of them 
don't recover, they just don't recover. And at six months, they can be diagnosed with ME. Why does it happen to those people and not to other people? We think the most likely answers are going to be found in the in the DNA, in the genes. Yes, sounds exciting as well. Sounds exciting and a lot of opportunities there. After all this, the research happening, the amazing work you guys are doing at ME Association, and even you personally, what you've been through on the journey, how do you see the future? So I think there's always going to be a need for the ME Association, and hopefully this will be part of the future. If we can, not us necessarily, but if a diagnostic blood test can be determined, that has got to come about at some point. I mean, it's been talked about and hoped for for, for decades, but you know, if we can turn research around, maybe with the influence of, of long COVID, we need a diagnostic test, I think. We need to determine what is causing ME, what is perpetuating the symptoms, and we need to develop a blood test so that GPs will feel a lot more confident in saying, you've got ME and you haven't got ME. But it will evolve, I think treatments, have got to happen at some point, effective treatment. Again, if we can develop the research, improve it so that we we know what might be causing, triggering, perpetuating symptoms. If we can develop a treatment that then targets those symptoms. So for example, if you go on the charity's website at the moment, uh, yesterday we published a research review and it was looking at how human herpes viruses can lie dormant in the, in the body and then be reactivated by other infections. So for example, glandular fever, the Epstein-Barr virus, is the most common trigger for MECFS. But the virus itself, once it's been fought, will lie dormant in the body. And then in later life, you can get an infection, say COVID, one of the studies specifically was looking at COVID, that can come along and it can reactivate that virus. Is that contributing to relapses in ME? Is it contributing to the perpetuation of ME? My colleague, Dr. Katrina Pears, she's our research correspondent. She, she's written this review, worth a read. It carries similarities with long COVID. So did COVID come along, reactivate these viruses? And it's these viruses that are perpetuating symptoms of long COVID. If it is, and this follows on from other research that was done during the pandemic, where they discovered the Epstein-Barr virus in particular was a trigger for multiple sclerosis. So if you can isolate these triggers, if you treat those triggers, say, let's say for Epstein-Barr virus, they invented a vaccine. Does that then mean that nobody will ever develop ME because you've vaccinated against most common trigger. We ran a survey last quarter last year where I actually asked people, what were your triggers for ME-CFS? What were the things that happened to you that you believe triggered uh, your diagnosis of ME? And the top result was glandular fever. And, and we had thousands of people coming in on that survey. That was actually the same top result as it was when I did the survey five years before. Yeah, very, very interesting. Absolutely. And honestly, it's exciting to hear all these ideas and things that are even being implemented in terms of research and the need for treatments. And obviously, 
for me, it's telling in the work you guys are doing at Emmy Association and all these resources you're able to put out, but then also raise awareness and encourage other other stakeholders to kind of like help fund to help um, people who not just are going through ME struggling, but then even the carers themselves. I like how the fact that you did what you did with regards to people that support people with ME CFS. I like that. There has been a lot of research into ME over the years, but the trouble is it's never been big enough. So there's been a lot of studies, but they've only ever looked at 10 people with ME or 50 people with ME or maybe if you're lucky 100 people with ME and you know I'm sure that in order to advance the field in order to validate some of these quite interesting results that they found we need studies that look at thousands and tens of thousands of people with ME because until we do we're not going to advance our knowledge because you need to confirm what might be an interesting finding in a huge pool of people in order to determine that it is in fact valid. Only then will the medical profession accept findings. Only then will we be able to move on to developing treatments. So I think this whole research funding is a big issue, not only in terms of trying to find enough money to have these big studies, but you then need to try and decide what research we're actually going to look at, because the sky's the limit and you could look at everything without finding answers. So it's quite difficult research. And for a charity, it can be a big black hole. If we decide, you know, if somebody comes to us with a grant and we like the look of it and we send it out for peer review and it gets good peer review, could potentially be investing hundreds of thousands of pounds and it's gone. And you'd, you've got no control over what the results are going to look like, what the conclusions are going to be, or how it's going to advance our knowledge. So as a charity of a small size, we have to be very careful about where we put our money. But I think in the future, these very big studies are going to have to be done. We just need to you know, determine how we all come together to fund them and what specifically research we, we decide to look into. We should mention, shouldn't we? So last year, the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, came on board with ME and he revealed that his niece has ME. He directed his department within government, the Department of Health and Social Care, to look at ME in terms of producing a delivery plan that will focus on addressing the key issues of life with ME, healthcare, social care, and research. Also, medical education, medical training. Myself, Dr. Shepherd, and Nicola, one of our other trustees, we've been members of the three working groups. We've been working with government departments, government ministers, government experts, clinical experts, representatives from the NHS with social care, as well as directly with patients. We've all been meeting since May last year to produce this delivery plan. Within the, the next few months, there should be a draft made available so that stakeholders, that includes patients, can feed their comments back. And hopefully, in the latter half of this year, perhaps, we will have a directive from the Department of Health and Social Care to the NHS, to Social Care Services, to the Medical Research Council, to the National Institute of Health Research, saying, we want MECFS to be prioritised and this is what you've got to do in order to bring um, better health and social care to, 
to people with ME. It was a significant development. It's the biggest thing to happen in recent years after the NICE guideline. Do you know the worst thing about my job? You never feel you're doing enough. Because we don't build things, because we, we're not a charity that builds hospitals, which, you know, maybe we should. Maybe our future will be we build respite care. Maybe that's something we should look at. Because we don't at the moment build something, we provide services, it can feel that we're not doing enough. We get contacted by people who are in the most desperate of circumstances, listening and providing suggestions and things like that just doesn't feel enough. And I find that that's the hardest part of my job. And I know that is shared by my colleagues. Often there just aren't answers to help people out and, and you just wish you could visit them at home and help them physically because that's what they want. It can be quite demoralizing at times. I like to say it's a curse of it being a service in a sense because it's intangible. That's what we face as well running a social enterprise. You know, we, we are always raising awareness of health conditions, health themes and marginalized health conditions. I mean, that's what we do this podcast. People living with different health conditions, they, they share their stories and obviously charities like yourselves as well. Because it's so intangible, right? There's nothing physical to hold on to. But the impact we all know it's greater than what one would even want to measure. And that's why it's difficult to quantify. It's almost like, you know, the value is so great that you just cannot put a price on it. Uh, we, do, we do the same, we reflect and we go, you know what? We've received this testimonial. Somebody said amazing thing about the work we do. Let's keep on going because this is our fuel. That gives us that buzz, you know, that, okay, our passion is in the right place because, I mean, I'm a lived experience myself. Everybody in the team has got that lived experience and, you know, the urge for just wanting to give to community and help out and that's what we offer the services we offer like you we can monitor how many people read the things we're doing we obviously know how many people use the telephone helpline so there's a certain degree of knowing how effective what you're doing is and we certainly know if something we do doesn't have the effect we hoped it would it is it's the feedback and the testimonials that keep me going so I, I've been doing a series of presentations about uh, ME and long COVID, looking at the similarities and differences and things. And last week I gave one to Health Watch Northumberland. And just getting some feedback from the people in the audience is enough for me to feel that what I'm doing does have some value and to keep me going. It might have been just a thanks or I think one or two people left sentences and things. What or how would you define health advocacy? I'm going to be tricky. So I think there's two. So health advocacy at the moment for us is supporting the NICE guideline and getting the recommendations implemented by every health and social care service across the country. That's our key focus and has been since the NICE guideline was published in 2021 and will continue to be for as long as it takes. And the second thing for health advocacy I would suggest is advocating for the individual at a personal level. It's not something we can do as a charity at the moment. We just don't have the resource to be able to do that. But you can, if you are struggling to advocate for yourself, if you're struggling to get the support that you need, 
that is part of the recommendations in the NICE guideline. You can ask your local authority uh, and the NHS to appoint an independent advocate, somebody who can advocate on your behalf to try and get you those services. And I think you can go through citizen's advice or if you just go on the, on the internet and I think it's search for NHS independent advocate or something and they'll direct you to your local authorities. Every time you see your doctor, you're advocating for yourself. I mean, it happens all the time, doesn't it? And one of the hardest things I found when I was so ill was having to be assertive and having to advocate for myself because I don't think it's an unreasonable expectation, but you expect when you're ill, a doctor to be all over you. I believe the person with the lived experience is the expert. You know that when you approach the specialist, it's a conversation that's meant to happen and then you kind of take in and then they take in as well. So you always hope for that, but we know that's not always the case because there's all these targets and things to chase. And so for me, what would you say to your younger self? I always thought I was quite strong and mentally strong, physically strong. I don't think anything prepares you for something like ME or long COVID. I have to say to my younger self to value each day as it comes because you just don't know, do you? You don't know when things are going to be snatched away from you. Anything you want anybody to take away from today's conversation? Long COVID is very isolating as well. I think it's important to realise that you aren't alone. You know, we've been talking about some of the, the numbers of people affected. Come to the ME Association website, get directed to social media. Get in touch with other people, share your experiences, learn from one another, learn from us. It isn't necessary that you have to be isolated with this condition. There's help out there. Thank you for sharing with us about the ME Association, Russell. I know for sure myself, I found it very useful. And in times when I was desperate and could not understand with so little research at the time I was diagnosed in 2011, was in the middle of my studies at the university. It was very, very confusing. Um, it was a huge paradigm shift for myself, but then eventually finding these useful resources from the charity website itself and other places was a great addition to my journey of living with this illness. And not only that, but also the journey of acceptance. I look forward to seeing their research and support for people living with ME-CFS or long COVID going forward. And I know everybody's aware of long COVID, so you have an idea of what impact it has in your, to your loved ones, to your friends, to even yourself if you've been impacted. Check out the great work of the ME Association on their website and socials. There's more information around this podcast. Please follow the links we've also attached wherever you're listening this from. And please do get in touch if you need any further support or direction and we'll point you in the right direction. But definitely, the ME Association is a place to start. Hope you enjoyed today's episode and thank you for your time.